I want you to try your best, and you're really going to have to stretch your imagination to do this, but I want you to try to imagine that we live in a nation that was founded upon godly principles, because we were. I want you to imagine what it would be like to be a part of a nation that was founded upon God's word. I don't mean random religion, but as Patrick Henry said, it cannot be overstated that the United States of America was founded not upon religionists, but, upon, but by Christians. It was founded not upon religions, but upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to imagine what it would be like to live in a nation that was founded upon God's word and his absolute moral truths, and then to see over the decades the systematic, intentional dismantling of those very core principles that made us who we are. Imagine what it would be like to live in a nation where we have allowed liberal socialists to invade our school systems and completely remove God from that system, to rewrite the textbooks so that generations today of, of children are growing up and never hearing about the real founding of this country and the principles upon which it was based. Imagine what it would be like living in a country where we have put men and women into positions of power as political leaders, as district attorneys, as judges, who not only do not believe in God, but hate the very notion of God. And imagine what it would be like to live in a nation where many of those very people hate the United States of America. They believe that America is a diseased nation and that it should be destroyed and replaced with socialism. Imagine living in a country where when marijuana dispensaries, strip clubs, and liquor stores are allowed to remain open, churches are forced to be closed. Imagine living in a country like that. Folks, we are there. We are seeing things unfold before our very eyes that have shocked even me. And I will tell you, I have been looking into this topic since I was pretty young. I remember as a youngster reading some books on this topic on what was coming to America. I found it quite hard to believe some of it then. But I knew that it was true because this was not being cooked up out of thin air. This was not the product of men's imaginations. What we were being shown was what has already taken place in other nations of the world who were once great nations who have now collapsed and are living in utter desolation. But we're proud Americans. And we've convinced ourselves over the years that that could never happen to us. Not here not in America. And I would, I would ring the warning bell for all of you who think that this morning. I would urge you to wake up. Because if you are living under that delusion, you've got some homework to do. Because I'm telling you folks, listen, 
America as a nation is headed for one of two things. We are either headed for national revival or we are headed for destruction. There's no third option. Mark my words. I've wrestled with this for months and I've kept my mouth shut. And that time is gone. I'm stunned at what I see taking place. I'm stunned most of all that we as Christians have been asleep at the wheel. And unless God's mercy extends to us in an extraordinary way, we are going to get what we deserve. This has been the pattern throughout time. It is one of the laws of God. It cannot be broken. Nations have tried to break God's laws, thinking that they will continue on and succeed and be prosperous and blessed and independent, and they have all seen otherwise. The Bible says, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. I hope we are not so naive as to think that we, Americans, hold some special place in God's heart above all the other nations that have been destroyed in the course of time for rebelling against him. I hope we're not so naive as to think that we are somehow going to escape the inevitable judgment of God for what we have allowed to take place in our nation. We are not. We're not. We saw last week how God's people, God's people, drifted from him, slowly began to disobey what he had clearly commanded them to do, and we saw the destructive path that that led them down. We just began looking at that last week in Judges chapter 1 and 2. I began showing you how their sin led them down the path of repeating cycles that looked like this. First, the people rebelled against God, and then in order to chastise them, to discipline and punish them for their sin, God handed them over to their enemies. And then the people began to feel the consequences of their sin, and they cried out to God, and amazingly, God had mercy on them. And then God sent someone called a judge to deliver them. The people once again enjoyed a time of peace, but after the judge died, they turned away from God again, and the cycle starts all over. And each time this happens, God sent them a different judge, a different person to deliver them, and we see those judges listed throughout the chapters of this book. That's what the book of Judges is about. Now, I considered, I must admit, only for a brief moment, I considered taking one Sunday to focus on each of the 12 judges mentioned throughout this book, but I just don't believe we need to stretch this book out that long. I think we need some good news before we spend 12 weeks looking at the horrors and the darkness and the evil contained in this book. This is a very sad, very dark book, as I've 
mention to you, and I think to, to take 12 weeks to look at each one of these 12 judges would have just been too much, especially when every cycle is the same and just some of the details involved in there are different along the way. So instead, uh, what I'm going to do is we looked at Judges 1 and 2 last Sunday as an introduction, and today what I'm going to do is just give us an overview of the rest of the book of Judges today in one Sunday, and then we're going to move on. And I think next Sunday when we look at the book of Ruth, I think it will make sense why, uh, why I've chosen to do it this way. Because trust me when I tell you, we'll get the point of this book without having to spend 12 weeks repeating the same discouraging downward spiral of these people. So just to begin this overview of the book of Judges and to give us the, the broad picture of what we're dealing with here, I listed out the names of these judges who God used to deliver his people, and I also listed the references in the book of Judges where these people are located. So what we see here is 12 judges listed in this book, and then there are some other people who are called judges a little later on in the book of First Samuel, but they were not involved in this same process in the same way that these people are here in the book of Judges. So there are the 12 people listed throughout this book. We have Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jer, Jephthah, Isban, Elon, Abdon, and Samson. And of course, the ones I think that everybody is most familiar with, if you spend any time in Sunday school, would be Gideon and Samson, possibly Deborah. The rest of the names, for the most part, seem to escape us. The first judge that God sent to rescue the Israelites, after they had turned their back on him, they had rebelled against him, and God sent them into the hands of their enemies to discipline them. The first judge God sent to rescue them after the people cried out was a man named Othniel. And if we read the verses from his time period, we'll, we'll get an idea of what these repeating cycles look like. Now look with me at Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 5. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, let me pause right there for, for just a second and ask you what should stand out to us about that verse. And can I just interject and say, surely that has to be one of the most boring verses in the entire Bible, isn't it? I mean, that's what we would assume. We read that verse and... It's one of those verses we think, why am I even reading this? This has no application to me. This has no relevance to my life and my walk with God whatsoever. We couldn't be more wrong. This is not, in fact, one of the most boring verses in the Bible because in those words, what we're actually seeing is the blatant rebellion and disobedience of God's people. As we saw last week and as we've seen in weeks prior in our Through the Bible study, God had commanded his people not to live among the pagan nations. It couldn't have been more clear for them. And so this verse is telling us that that's precisely what his people are doing. Now read that verse again with that in mind. 
God's people, the people of Israel, are living among all these pagan nations. This verse should be like a red alert to us saying something has gone terribly wrong here. And the reason God was so adamant about them not living among the idol worshipers is because, as we saw, that first little area of compromise was going to lead them to the next area of compromise, and the next, and the next, and the next. I told you last week, it's a slippery slope. That first act of disobedience against God And we live through that and we kind of look up at the heavens and go, well, lightning didn't strike me, so I guess I got away with this. And the next temptation that comes to disobey God, we go, well, hmm, wasn't so bad the last time. Nothing wrong with doing it again. The people saw these pagan nations. God said, rid the land of them. They will come in and they will draw your hearts away from me. And the people went, eh, I don't think so. I think we'll be okay. I think it'll be okay to intermingle ourselves with people who hate God. Probably be okay. And so this verse ought to scream a warning at us. They began to just loosen the reins just a little bit. Let's not be so strict as our forefathers. They were old fuddy-duddies. We're a new, younger, more enlightened generation. Let's be more tolerant of sin. So they began to compromise. They began to disobey in small ways. And in verse 6 of chapter 3, we see what the next step was that was the consequence of that first step of disobedience. And in verse 7, we see the step after that. Verse 6 says, And they, that's God's people, they took the pagans' daughters for themselves as wives. Uh Uh-oh. And they gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Wow, that's quite a second step. Verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Do you see how this is heading downhill fast? First, first, Let's just not obey God completely. Let's drive out some of the nations. But these people over here, they seem nice. Yes, they're godless people. They're God-haters. They worship false idols, but, but they seem nice. Let's not just live next to them. Let's now intermingle with them. Let's give our sons and daughters to be married with them so that now their children will be raised with mixed input about who God really is. And now what do we see the next step is? Now they're not just disobeying a little bit. Now it tells us blatantly they're doing evil in the sight of the Lord. It goes on. They forgot the Lord, their God. Wow. They forgot God. And they served the Baals and the Asheroth. Each step of disobedience is leading them further and further away from God. But here's this amazing capacity that we human beings have that is also very subtly dangerous. Our bodies and our minds have this remarkable ability to adapt to our surroundings. Now, this is a very good thing in a way. If you put on an itchy sweater 
the receptors all over your skin begin sending warning messages to your brain that something seems to be invading your body. It's uncomfortable. Get it off now. But if you leave it on for a while, those receptors, those alarm stations begin to go off one by one, turn off one by one. And after a while, the sweater's not as uncomfortable as it was 30 minutes ago. If you get into a hot tub, what's the first thing your body does is, are you crazy? Get out of here. This is too hot for human beings. But you stay in there. And those emergency signals that fired when you put your body in that hot water begin to tone down, begin to quiet down after a while. And next thing you know, you're sat in the hot tub for two hours and it doesn't even feel hot anymore. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. We sin against God. And the Holy Spirit says, are you crazy? Get out of here. What are you doing? And we put up with it. And we put up with it. And we do it again. And all of a sudden, the voice of the Holy Spirit gets quieter and quieter. Until we reach a point where we don't even recognize it anymore. Just these three verses I've read should bring tears to our eyes. These are God's people. They started out disobeying, and now they're doing evil in God's sight. They have forsaken God, and they are worshiping false idols. And so they've taken this course, and they won't listen to his truth so God has to step in and discipline them. Verse 8, therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cush Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel was his name. That was the first one on our list. The son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Verse 10, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand so that his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. Verse 11, so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now what we've just read is the first cycle that God's people went through and it's representative of every cycle that follows. God blesses his people. They eventually take his blessings for granted. They turn away from him. God disciplines them. They cry out. God amazingly has mercy on them. He rescues them. They enjoy a time of peace and blessing. And, and what's the next thing they do once they're back in a time of peace and blessing? Verse 12, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So once again, God handed them over to one of their enemies. This time it was a man named Eglon, the king of Moab. Eglon comes in and he defeats the Israelites and they suffer the consequences of their sin. So you can guess what the next thing was that they did now that they're feeling the consequences of their disobedience. What did they do? Verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud. And so it goes. And there's so many details that we could cover about, about each of these judges. I'm sure you remember some of them. Ehud was 
the left-handed man. That's pointed out in scripture because it was very unusual back then, and sorry to all you lefties, but it was seen as a great disadvantage in those days. You know, the Bible always talks about the right hand of God, the right hand of strength. And the scripture here seems to indicate that possibly Ehud had something wrong with his right hand that forced him to be left-handed, but it turned out to sort of be an advantage for him because uh, everyone, all the warriors in those days kept their dagger on their left side so that they could cross-draw, you know, right-handed, grab that dagger or that sword and fight. Ehud hid his under his garment on his right side. So as he was going in to see King Eglon and apparently deliver what was a, a very important private message to the king, he was searched at the gate, you know, went through the, uh, the little uh, body scanner thing there. And apparently they didn't even think to check his right side because nobody keeps a sword under their clothes on their right side. And so God enabled this oddity to uh, give him access to the king while carrying a weapon. He went into King Eglon, who the Bible tells us was a very large man, very overweight, and as he's talking privately with the king, Ehud takes out the dagger from under his cloak and buries it into the gut of King Eglon and kills him. And after that happened, Israel enjoyed another time of peace you know, until Ehud, their deliverer, died. After which they once again turned away from God. And they soon needed another deliverer. So God sent a man named Shamgar to save them. And when all that was done, the people sinned again, and they cried out for a deliverer again. And this time God used Deborah to initiate their deliverance. And Deborah actually assigned a man named Barak to go and deliver the people, but Barak was afraid, and he said, I'm not going unless you go with me, Deborah. And Deborah said, that's fine, I'll go with you, but because you've chosen this path, the glory for this victory is going to go to a woman, she tells him in Judges chapter 4, verse 9, and God is going to deliver the enemy into the hands of a woman, and that's exactly what happens. And then you come to Judges chapter 6, and what does the very first verse in Judges chapter 6 say? The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Folks, this is just, we just see this throughout the book of Judges. It's like a broken record. Now this time when God gave them into the hands of the Midianites for seven years, it was a devastating time for Israel emotionally spiritually, in every way. The Bible says there were so many Midianites that the people and the camels could not even be counted. When you saw them on the plains, the Bible says it looked like a swarm of locusts coming in to Israel, and they completely desolated the entire land. They laid the whole land to waste, and Judges 6, 6 tells us, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Well, of course they did. And this time God chose someone who, as I said earlier, I'm sure we're all familiar with, but was a very unusual person to be a deliverer of Israel. His name was Gideon. And in Judges chapter 6, verse 11, the first thing we learn about Gideon was that he was scared to death of the Midianites and he was hiding out in a wine press. And while he's hiding there, something unexpected happens. Verse 12 of Judges 6 says that an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. 
And I'm sure Gideon was looking around for someone else because we see in the following verses, he did not see himself as mighty in any way. He said, I'm from the the least of the clans and I'm the least in my family. And then he's told in verse 14 to go and save Israel from the Midianites. But Gideon is so afraid that you remember he, he sort of puts God to multiple tests to make God prove that He's really who he says he is and that he's really going to be with him in this battle. And so God graciously and patiently does that and Gideon is finally convinced and so he starts assembling the military troops together. And he assembles 32,000 men, but in Judges chapter 7 verse 2, God says to him, no, you can't go to battle with that many men Because when you win the victory, then Israel is going to claim that they won the victory instead of giving the glory to me. They're going to boast in their own strength. And so chapter 7 chronicles this process that God takes Gideon through to thin down his army until he's only left with 300 men. And with just those 300 men, They go to war against the Midianites and God brings about this jaw-dropping victory for Israel to prove to his people once again that he is God and that all, all glory belongs to him. But no sooner had this happened, and the Bible tells us that Gideon asked all the men to bring a golden ring to him, one of their gold rings, and he takes this gold and he fashions it into an ephod. It was an item used only by the priest, the high priest in the temple. It was a sacred item. It was not to be messed with by anyone else. And here's Gideon monkeying around with something he has no business doing. And he fashions this ephod and he puts it up on display in the city. And what happens? The people of Israel go and begin to bow down and worship this golden ephod. And you just want to do one of those face palms and go, are you kidding me? God has just shown his power, his might, his love, his mercy to you. He's rescued you from these oppressors. And the next thing you do is you turn around and you're worshiping some worthless item in the city. Judges 8.27 tells us these Sad words, it says, it became a snare to Gideon and his family. What a horrible footnote that is to have on your biography. God takes you, the least of your clan, the least of your family, a man who's scared to death, and he says to you, I'm going to put my spirit on you. I'm going to empower you. You're going to bring about one of the greatest victories in Israel's history. And instead of allowing that to be your biography, the footnote for your life is, this idol became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Wow. And then guess what? The story continues in Judges 8.33, and it says, Then it came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal beareth their God. And folks, this goes on and on and on. Acts 13.20 drops this little tidbit in our ear. People have debated how long this period of the Judges is. It's quite difficult to calculate from the book because some of these periods we think possibly overlap, so they can't be counted in a linear sort of way. 
But we get the answer in Acts chapter 13, verse 20. It says that this period of the judges lasted for about 450 years. Let that sink in for just a moment. This pattern of rebellion and judgment and crying out and being delivered and rebelling again. This was not just a couple generations. This was 450 years. And by the way, Gideon is judge number six. We're only halfway through. I don't mean with the sermon. I I mean, (laughs) we're only halfway through the judges. Only halfway through. You understand now why... I don't want to spend two or three months going through these repeated cycles because you guys would want to kill me before this was all over. You'd be like, enough darkness, enough sin, enough gloom. (laughs) I remember once here years ago, this is no joke, I preached for two consecutive weeks on sin. And someone said to me, like, dude, this is getting kind of dark. (laughs) Like, really? Really? We can't handle two weeks of this? You know how churches are today, man? You got to pet people up. You got to give them a pick-me-up, as Osteen says. My job is just to give people a lift for the week. Well, good on you, Joel. They're all going to hell if they don't hear the gospel. (laughs) Next comes Jair, then Jephthah, then Ibzan, then Elon, then Abdon, and then finally Samson, another one we're very familiar with. And Samson is the exact opposite of Gideon. Gideon was weak and afraid and insecure. Samson was strong and impulsive and arrogant. And while I know most Sunday school lessons highlight Samson's incredible feats of strength and then tell the children to go out and be strong and brave like Samson, the truth is Samson's actions are a blueprint for how not to live. He was physically strong, but he was morally weak. He was a womanizer, and his lack of discipline eventually caught up with him. He was captured by The enemy, they gouged out his eyes, they put him in chains, and they forced him to grind grain in prison like a mule. This was the great Samson. And his life ended in utter humiliation when the Philistines brought him into the massive temple of Dagon so that he could amuse them like a clown. The Bible says that 3,000 people gathered there laughing at him and mocking him. And he asked the boy, he was blind now, so he asked the boy who led him into the temple, hey, please put me next to the, the two main columns in the center of the temple so that I can lean against them. So the boy leads him there. And as Samson is standing there supporting uh, against these supporting pillars, listening to the laughs and the jeers from the God-haters, He prays to God for strength one more time. And he leans against these pillars and he pushes with all his might. And Judges 16, 29 and 30 says that Samson pushed over the two pillars that supported the entire temple and the temple collapsed, killing everyone, including himself. Who in the world wants their life to end that way? The Bible says... In that verse there that Samson killed more of God's enemies in his death than he did in his life. And I've always heard that spun as a positive statement. I would submit to you, I think it's a shame. Because I think what that statement is actually implying is it took Samson's death 
to bring about what he should have accomplished in his life. That's what I think. Could be wrong. But I'm not. (laughs) I just want to make sure you're still listening. And folks, the book's not over there. We don't have time to cover the rest. In the remaining chapters, chapters 17 to 21, you can read it for yourself if you want, but I wouldn't do it with the kids as a bedtime story because the people sink even lower into the most gruesome, sickening kinds of sin. It would make me blush to even talk about them here. And we have to ask. We have to ask. How could something like this happen to a once godly nation? I'm circling back now to where I started, my my opening comments. How could something like this happen to a once godly nation? Well, as I hinted at last week, the book of Judges closes with words that tell us precisely how this happened. Judges 21, verse 25. The last thing the book of Judges has to say to us. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I would say to you folks as we wind this down this morning, I would suggest to you that that was not just the problem for the people in Judges, That is the problem with every one of us. The words of that old song are so accurate. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You ever wrestle with that? What we're seeing take place on a massive scale in Judges, really does describe what so often takes place in our own heart. It really does describe our own battle with sin. So surely, we should all be asking ourselves the question, in what areas am I still living by what I think is okay, instead of by what God has said is right and wrong? Because if we're not surrendering those areas to God, then the next step of disobedience will become that much easier. And here's the warning for all of us. The Israelites, as we've seen through our studies, the Israelites didn't start out at this low point of corruption. You'll remember just a few weeks ago, we saw at the end of the book of Joshua and stressed again at the book in the beginning of the book of Judges, the people confidently cried out, we will follow the Lord and we will serve him only. Hooray! What an exciting day that was in church. But they didn't take God seriously. They began with a small area of disobedience that led to another and another until living in disobedience to God didn't bother them anymore. In fact, it was normal for them. The book of Judges is the record of a continuous moral decline in the heart's of the people of Israel. At the start of this book, in chapter 1, the people we saw, are they, they were fighting against the enemies of God, as God had told them to do. But when you come to the end of the book, the enemy is no longer the Canaanites. The enemy is their own people, the tribe of Benjamin. And they killed more than 25,000 of their own people from the 
tribe of Benjamin, little brother Benjamin. Each cycle of turning away from God brings them to a lower and lower state of depravity until the nation becomes literally unrecognizable from where it began. And you can see the same pattern described in the New Testament in Romans chapter 1. It talks about how God has given man knowledge of himself so that they could know him and so that they're without excuse. But what does man do in response? It says, instead of glorifying God and giving him thanks, they proclaimed themselves to be wise, and in so doing, they became fools. It says they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for idols, and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Listen, and it says three times, it says they went so far in their sin. They went so far in their own wisdom that God gave them up. God gave them over to their own corrupt practices and they became perverted in their depraved thinking. That's what we see throughout the book of Judges and I would submit to you that's what we see before our very eyes today in our nation. We become perverted in our evil thinking, perverted, and we are convinced that it is the right way. This book of Judges Deliver such a dark message of sin and judgment. But here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see as I close and we begin preparing our minds for next Sunday. This book also proclaims a message of hope and salvation. Because the most amazing thing about the book of Judges is not the sin of the people. The most amazing thing about the book of Judges is the mercy of God. It's just astounding. I keep reading through this book and saying, God, go get them. Rain fire down on these wicked people. God, they're, they're defiling your holy name. And then I go, oh, wait a minute. I did the same thing yesterday. We've already seen the mercy of God in every one of these cycles as he comes to rescue these wayward people again and again. But there's a second, even greater display of God's mercy in this book. Because while all the darkness and rebellion and evil is taking place in the book of Judges, there's a tiny thread of light that God is weaving through the entire story. The little book of Ruth comes right after the book of Judges, but the events of Ruth actually take place during the book of Judges. And in that dark time of the Judges, the story of Ruth shines like a ray of light. It reminds us that you can choose to stand up for God, even if no one else is. It reminds us that no amount of evil in the world will ever thwart God's ultimate plan of salvation. And in that truth, regardless of what is going on around us, in that truth, you and I can find great hope. And that's what we're going to talk about next Sunday. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time... May God bless you as you continue to follow Him.
of my heart I want to see 